Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the intensifying scrutiny of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as he awaits potential charges of criminal contempt. There are now new indications that he is far more responsible for the big lie than was previously known. The Washington Post is out with a comprehensive report detailing how Meadows was the chief enabler to a president who was desperate to hold on to power. It portrays a chief of staff who, through the gates to the Oval Office wide open, acting as a facilitator to conspiracy theorists, and who was always eager to present Trump with new material to bolster his false claims. As one former administration official said, people received voicemails from election conspiracy theorists who would begin their message by saying Meadows had shared the number and suggested they call. Now, let's not forget that, among other things, Meadows was in possession of a PowerPoint presentation that recommended that Trump declare a national security emergency, a move straight out of the authoritarian playbook. In fact, the committee today subpoenaed the person responsible for promoting that PowerPoint, described by The Post as a retired army colonel with a background in psychological influence operations, a.k.a. information warfare, who described himself on his LinkedIn page as the founder, forklift driver, and floor sweeper at One Shot Distillery and Brewery in Dripping Springs, Texas, and who reportedly spoke to Meadows up to eight or ten times, as well as to members of Congress. That proposal is among a long list of conspiracy theories and election plots that were circulated among Trump's inner circle. Things like the Eastman memo and the Ellis memo, as well as the bonkers Italy gate and Chinese thermostat conspiracy theories, all of which memo Meadows apparently was willingly or even eagerly open to handing over to a president who was desperate to cling to power. Meadows also had at least half a dozen accomplices in Congress who served as willing foot soldiers in Trump's attempted coup. People like Congressman Jim Jordan, Paul Gosar, Mo Brooks, and Louis Gohmert, all members of the Extremist Freedom Caucus, of which Meadows was a former chair. The New York Times reveals that they collaborated with the Trump campaign on a strategy that would become a blueprint for Trump's supporters in Congress, hammer home the idea that the election was tainted, announce legal actions being taken by the campaign, and bolster the case with allegations of fraud. But they also took real steps to actually overthrow the election. They bombarded the Justice Department with dubious claims of voting irregularities. They pressured members of state legislatures to conduct audits, and they plotted to disrupt the certification on January 6th of Biden's victory. These lawmakers were actively trying to subvert democracy, and they're the same people who could head up crucial committees if Republicans take back the House next year. Joining me now is Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and the DCCC, and Chris Whipple, New York Times bestselling author of The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And uh, Chris Whipple, I want to start with you on this, because there are a couple of different kinds of chiefs of staff. There are the ones who tell the presidents things they don't want to hear. And then there are the kind that are simply enablers, particularly of a narcissistic style of president. Here's a story. This is not from you. This is from Tim Alberta. 
was in Politico uh, in 2020. And this is a story that I think defines who Mark Meadows was. And this is what when John Boehner found out that there was a group of these Freedom Caucus members who were plotting to make sure that he was not going to be speaker and to vote against him. And while Meadows had not actually voted against Boehner, this is what Boehner recounts to Tim Alberta. Boehner said that Meadows was on the couch, sitting across from me in my chair in his office, and suddenly he slides off the couch, down onto his knees, and puts his hands together in front of his chest. He says, Mr. Speaker, will you please forgive me? And this incident was witnessed by several other people, including Boehner's chief of staff, who described it as the strangest behavior I've ever seen in Congress. That is the kind of person Mark Meadows was as a member of Congress What do you make of the kind of enabler he became when Donald Trump tried to overthrow an election? Well, you know, he's that's classic Meadows. I've always thought of Meadows as not so much a traditional chief as a kind of glad handing butler or maitre d' whose only measure of success was how much he could please the president. I mean, just think about this. No one was more loyal to Donald Trump than Jared Kushner. But when Kushner got one look at this Star Wars bar of crazy conspiracy theorists who were hanging out in the Oval Office, he literally got out of town. He got on a plane and he flew to the Middle East and he didn't come back until January 6th, coincidentally. But Meadows was he was all in. He couldn't get enough of this crazy stuff. And of course, he ultimately became the, you know, the chief crackpot conspirator in the plot to uh, to overthrow the election. So that's classic Meadows. Well, and, you know, it is interesting because even William Barr, too, William Barr, as much of a sycophant and willing to basically do almost anything short of break the law himself for Donald Trump. When this came up, he was like, I'm out. Bye. And he he just didn't want to participate. But it strikes me, Kurt, that what brings together this sort of group of people who were the core plotters is that, yes, you have the the new dummies, you know, the people like Bobert, you know, the sort of, you know, lunkhead freshmen. But you also have a lot of people in this Freedom Caucus. And that's the Tea Party. And I think one of the big stories the media has missed is that the Tea Party went from being this extremist group that believed that President Obama was not legitimate, that questioned President Obama being president of the United States, that tried to undermine him and sometimes in some very racist and strange ways. They are now the core of the Republican Party in the House in particular and in some in the Senate, like Rand Paul. They are the core of this conspiracy. Is that something that you think that we've all missed in sort of telling the story of sort of the modern Republican Party? It really is, Joy. I mean, It would be easy if we all wanted to believe the fiction that what's happening right now with the Republican Party is new. It's some new phenomenon that none of us could have possibly seen coming. But really, all of this, the ingredients for this began during the the years of the Barack Obama presidency. And delegitimizing a president, questioning the legitimacy of a standing president, that's not new stuff. That's what the Republicans did for the entire duration of the Barack Obama presidency. And you look at the cast of characters now, as you articulately, you know, it's so true. Mark Meadows, Mike Pompeo, these are people who came of age during the time that they were investigating the Obama administration. They were prominent players on the oversight mm-hmm. committee with folks like Jim Jordan. And they, they are the ones who spent years issuing hundreds of subpoenas, calling for hundreds of investigations, doing everything they could to use the instruments of power to try to cripple the first black president in the United States history. And now we're kind of seeing him move over and, and go from the fringes of the party to being the central nucleus center of the entire Republican Party. And it's something that we could chart 
over the last 10 years. This didn't come out of nowhere. This isn't something that we should all be blindsided with. It's been there the entire time. Right. And Crystal, I mean, I feel like you have to start putting the pieces together because who Joe Biden is, is not just the Joe Biden who dared to beat Donald Trump after Donald Trump went all the way to Ukraine to try to destroy him and his family and beat him anyway. Um, But he's also President Obama's former vice president. Right. He was with the black guy like he's part of the thing that they wanted to eradicate from American history. And he's still here and is now president. Let's go into some of the things they did, because some of this stuff was absolutely wild. Um, One of the things that's been overshadowed is one of the things that the right tried to use against Hillary Clinton was but her emails and the media. Also, another big media failing was the media was obsessed with these emails. You had Mark Meadows also using private email to do this stuff. He's letting conspiracy theorists and coup plotters in using private emails. This because comes nothing. No scandal. Hillary Clinton even reacted to it saying, huh, my stuff was all about gefilte fish. My emails were about like weddings and, and, and risotto. And the media is just ho-hum when they're using private emails. But I think the other thing that is, I think, really big is the idea that this memo, and I'm, I have a copy of it right here. It's, this, my version is black and white, but it originally I think was in color. The plot here had to do with psychological warfare. It started before the election even happened. This gentleman started, this former colonel started in August of 2020, saying we're going to preset the idea that this election was fraudulent. It went to CEOs, a guy from Overstock.com, the MyPillow guy. This is a pretty comprehensive plot to overturn an election that, you know, including declaring a national security emergency. That ain't normal. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's staggering. And of course, the hypocrisy is off the charts here. I mean, Hillary's emails versus what uh, Meadows is is clearly hiding here. Can you imagine just knowing what's already in the public record, which which Meadows voluntarily put out there? Can you imagine what's on the encrypted app that he's got the signal account or, you know, his private cell phone? I mean, this is this is unbelievably serious. And, and Kurt's right that it's not new, but it's gone to a, an entirely new level. And I think the good news is that maybe that the January 6th committee doesn't have to convince Republicans of anything. And it doesn't have to win the hearts and minds of the MAGA crowd. All it has to do, and it's a tall order, is lay out the evidence. And then this is on the Department of Justice and it's on Merrick Garland. You know, I was talking to Fiona Hill yesterday about this. And, you know, there's always a risk when you start prosecuting the party that's out of power. You don't want to look like a banana republic to the rest of the world. But the much greater risk is to do nothing when you've got people red-handed trying to destroy our, our democracy. So I think the good news here is that, yes, the Republican Party is all in on the big lie, uh, but there's something that can be done about it at the end of the day. Right. I mean, the I mean, the idea, again, this would be the number one headline in every newscast in this country if the Barack Obama administration, the Obama Biden administration had said that they were going to plan a national security emergency to try to roll back the 2016 election because of foreign interference. They knew there was foreign interference. They put out in October information about foreign interference. Had they then taken the next step and said, because Russia is interfering in our election, we're going to declare a national security emergency and we're going to communicate on private emails that we're going to do such an emergency and shut down the election of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was a completely unfit human being who never should have been near the presidency. But had they done that, Kurt, 
You can imagine and I can imagine we both know what the media would have done and we both know what Republicans would have done. But here's what Republicans are now. Let's just play this real quick. These are five Republican candidates for governor in Minnesota, and they were asked a very simple question. Did Biden win the election? This is how thorough the big lie has become. Take a look. In your opinion, did President Biden win a constitutional majority in the Electoral College? I can't know what I don't know. And I think that we have to take that attitude towards 2020. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. And I can't tell you last time Chicago's had a perfectly free and fair election. <laughs> so this is not a new problem. I do believe there was voter fraud at a massive scale across this country. I don't think the election was fair, uh, but I do think we, we have the results that we have in the Electoral College is the way that we determine the election. The more we watch, the less they cheat. This is complete brainwashing, Kurt. Oh, brother. I mean, again, it's now a prerequisite. If you want to run as a Republican candidate in any election, local, state, federal, to, to deny the truth, to deny democracy. They are an anti-democratic party. And we talk about the slippery slope that exists of... Do you prosecute people who are of the other party? Well, when that other party has made the conscious decision to make itself a criminal organization, to make itself a, an organization that harbors domestic terrorism, an organization devoted to ending democracy as you know it, then it's not an offensive act by the Justice Department. It's an act of self-defense of democracy. That's what it's there to do. And if we aren't willing to go that far to protect democracy, well, then we don't deserve to have it in the first place. I mean, this is this is kind of our last stand here, Joy, because I'll tell you, if Republicans get back the reins of power in the 2022 elections and the 2024 election, they will never relinquish it again. We are seeing the extraordinary lengths to which Republicans are willing to go to throw out a free and fair election in 2020. If we let them back in the driver's seat of democracy, it's over. And we, and we now know that uh, Jim Jordan is one of the people who is for, forwarding text messages with, uh, we wonder what's going to happen with him. Is, there, is the Congress going to act on him? Let's do a hard turn. We're gonna, it's not really such a hard turn, Chris Whipple. We now know per, per the Washington Post that the same Republican Party, the, the official, you know, the Republican Party, they've agreed to pay up to $1.6 million in legal bills for the former president, for Donald Trump, not for anything related to potentially interfering in the election, not for the case that he's facing in Georgia. Georgia that could be a criminal, um, you know, a criminal proceeding regarding interfering in the election, but for his private legal expenses for more than 10 years of, of shenanigans with his personal finances and his real estate. Dream with me. The Democratic National Committee doing the same for any Democrat. Not that there's any Democrat who's, you know, spent his whole life not paying taxes. But go ahead. What your thoughts on this no, in, new development? In, in, inconceivable. It, it never would happen. But I don't think it should shock us that the, the Republicans would, would do this. I mean, they are obviously all in on, on the big lie, on the notion of the stolen election. They are enthralled to Trump. It's a, it's a cult of personality worthy of Jonestown. And uh, that's just the way it is. And I, but, you know, I think that it, all, all we can do at this point is hope that the truth will come out through the January 6th committee uh, they've been, they're off to a great start and, it, and a continuous drip, drip, drip of this kind of incriminating information uh, may get us to a point where I once thought that the defining image of Mark Meadows was holding Donald <laughs> Trump's coat as he delivered that speech that launched the insurrection. Look, it may not be too much to hope that the defining image is a prison door clanging shut. Uh, it could yeah. happen if the evidence is brought to light 
And in that case, it it really won't matter how many Republicans you convince. Uh, You've got to convince Merrick Garland. Yeah. Amen to that. And it is Jonestown complete with them gulping the covid Kool-Aid, literal Jonestown um, at this point. Thank you, Kurt Bardella, Chris Whipple. Thank you both very much. I'm next on the readout. New warnings about the rapid spread of Omicron. Speaking of covid, with cases doubling every two to three days. But a member of one of most of America's most famous families sees opportunity in all of the death and despair. Plus, the year will come to an end with no movement on voting rights or build back better, with the two usual suspects standing in the way and repeating the same lame excuses. And tonight's absolute worst says they hated the gift that you got them, then turned around and re-gifted it to someone else, hoping to get all the praise. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The Kennedy name typically conjures up notions of sacrifice for the greater good, not misinformation and grift, which is more common with a Trump. Alas, the Associated Press did a deep dive into Robert Kennedy Jr. and discovered that he and his charity, the Children's Health Defense, have profited from a massive anti-vaccine campaign that uses slanted information and conspiracy theories to spread distrust of the vaccine. According to the AP, Kennedy was named one of the disinformation dozen by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which says that he and the Children's Health Defense website are among the top spreaders of false information about vaccines online. This comes as we are facing a winter tsunami of the Delta and Omicron variants. The Centers for Disease Control is warning that deaths in the United States will soar by 73 percent or more than 15,000 a week. The CDC also expects the United States to reach 1.3 million new infections by Christmas. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced today that New York City has experienced a significant increase in cases and that the Omicron variant is here in full force. In fact, New York State reported 18,000 new cases today alone, which is close to the pandemic record. Reports of long lines at testing locations throughout the city are flooding social media. Late this afternoon, President Biden held a meeting with his COVID-19 task force and delivered this message to the American people. Due to the steps we've taken, Omicron has not yet spread as fast as it would have otherwise done, and that's happening in Europe. But it's here now, and it's spreading, and it's going to increase. For unvaccinated, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. The good news, if you're vaccinated and you have your booster shot, you're protected from severe illness and death. 
the head of the World Health Organization warned that Omicron is spreading at a rate not seen in any previous variant and could overwhelm unprepared health systems. The University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which has more than 40 hospitals and more than 8,000 beds, is close to capacity and at times is running over. In Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic and other hospitals took out full-page ads in major state newspapers on Sunday, pleading with the public to get vaccinated and wear a mask. The ad reads, we're heartbroken, we're overwhelmed. Officials note that hospitalizations are up 21% throughout the country over the past two weeks. With me now, Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, and Dr. Rob Davidson, ER physician in West Michigan, and the executive director of the Committee to Protect Healthcare. Thank you for both being here. I want to read this um, piece that you wrote, Dr. Davidson, um, and, and you wrote this in the New York Times. I'm just going to read a little bit. You wrote, in a small hospital, our patients are our neighbors, friends and old high school classmates. The profound sadness of failing to save a, save a life hits us every time. Familiarity deepens our sadness, but more and more we feel frustrated and angry. Losing a patient is never easy. Losing one so senselessly when the death could have been avoided with a free, safe, and effective vaccine is devastating. Uh, we've, we, we've seen Dr. Kismakia Corbett say the same thing as one of the people who invented the vac- one of the vaccines. At this point, should this many people be dying, even if there is a more transmissible variant? Absolutely not. I mean, we're dealing with the Delta surge, so I, I can't even imagine what Omicron could bring. We're in a county that's only about 42 to 43 percent vaccinated fully. And again, these are folks I've been taking care of for two decades of my life and have sworn to take care of them. So when they come in, that's what you do. You take care of them. But it is extremely what? disheartening to see nurses, you know, crying on their way home from work because the person they went to high school with just got put on a ventilator and they know they're probably not going to make it. And what do they say? These people that you know, that trust you, that know you, that you've been treating. What, what is their reason for not being vaccinated? Listen, uh, people say I, I've heard that it can make you sick. Right. I've, I've heard that so many times. And I explain to them how many people are in our hospital. You know, we're in a small little critical access hospital, about 25 beds. Every person but one over the past month has been COVID positive. You know, one goes home or one dies, unfortunately, and they get replaced with another. And I tell them that. I tell them the people we have to ship to bigger hospitals who need more advanced care. I tell them about all of this happening and just try to convince them. But it's they've been poisoned with this idea that, A, COVID's not a big deal from the beginning, and B, these vaccines will somehow make them sick. You know, Dr. Blackstock, so there's a lot of also confusion. You know, I know a lot of people who were wary of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because they, they heard it was less effective than other people said, no, get it. It's one stop. It's one shot and done. There's been a lot of questions. You know, have the CDC saying that they actually do think Pfizer and Moderna are better. So, I mean, at this point, what do you recommend that people do? Are you still in the camp of get whatever vaccine you can get and get it fast or should we be pushing people to go and get Pfizer and Moderna, particularly if they're willing, given the surge, to at least mm-hmm. try to get vaccinated? Right. So, Joy, in the beginning, there was a scarcity of vaccines. So that's why yeah. we were encouraging people to get whatever vaccine they could get. Um, but now with this you know, emerging data showing the, the clotting issues with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, especially among younger women, you know, there is this issue that, you know, people maybe probably should take the mRNA vaccines. And that is what is being recommended now. They do have higher efficacy and that's been shown um, all along. So, you know, definitely based on the data that we have at hand, I would recommend the mRNA vaccines. 
And yet the mRNA vaccines are the source, Dr. Blackstock, of more of the conspiracy theories, right? This distrust of big pharma, I this know. idea that there's some sort of conspiracy to make you change your RNA. And people think they're experts and they go on like Facebook posts and do spike protein talks. They don't know anything about it. I don't know how we talk through this with people at this point, rather, other than just send them all to Dr. Davidson right. so he can tell them how many people are dying <laughs> in front of him. I don't know what to do at this point. Well, I, I think, you know, we've seen that, you know, Facebook is a huge culprit in allowing, you know, these organizations and, and people to uh, distribute this, disseminate this information. I mean, uh, RFK Jr.'s uh, Facebook posts have been shared widely. He has hundreds of thousands of social media followers. You know, I actually ran into some of his the representatives of his organization at a predominantly black event over the sun- summer giving out information entitled medical racism, but it was actually anti-vax propaganda. So it is just so, and they're so well-funded. And so that is the problem. We have to start holding these social media platforms accountable and that's not being done yet. And Dr. Davidson, you know, I'm worried. I think a lot of people are changing their plans for holidays because they're worried about traveling. Should we be ceasing and desisting in your view in terms of getting together for the holidays with anyone who's not in our pod, our group of people that we've been around mostly for the last year. Yeah, I think that's the safest way to go, right? If, if you have people who you know are fully vaccinated, particularly if they're boosted and they don't have symptoms, and hey, if you can find a few rapid antigen tests out there and you can do those before they get together, you know, I think you go for it. Um, we are going to have to live with this at some point, right? So if we we can trust people in telling us they've been vaccinated, they've been boosted, but I, I wouldn't go anywhere near a group of people where I didn't know their status or I knew that they were likely unvaccinated um, because I think you're just setting yourself up. You know, you, you that viral yeah. load just goes up and up. The more people you're around that have it, even if you're vaccinated, you're setting yourself up to possibly be a breakthrough. And we're, we're out of time very quickly, but Dr. Blackstock, just to be clear, is Omicron, does it, is it more deadly or is it just more transmissible or both? So what we know now, it's definitely more transmissible. It can reinfect people who have had previous infection or been vaccinated. We're, we, it's, the jury is still out on whether it's more deadly. More deadly. But, but because it's more transmissible, the sheer numbers of people infected could drive uh, hospitals to overcapacity. Well, I, uh, Dr. Rob Davidson, God bless you for what you're doing. Dr. Uche Blackstop, God bless you for what you're doing. Both of you, thank you. Stay in the fight and God bless. Have a happy holiday if you possibly can. Thank you for all you do. This is tough. Thank you. Still ahead, trying to figure out what conservative Democratic senators want from the Biden administration's key initiatives is like trying to hit a moving target while blindfolded. Anybody else feel like this may be an intentional effort to run out the clock? We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. 
We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. President Biden is calling for the Senate to get moving on two big planks of his agenda. In a statement tonight, he said we must pass the Build Back Better, the Build Back Better social spending bill and added that we must also press forward on voting rights legislation as quickly as possible. With Congress's Christmas recess coming soon, both may be on life support. President Biden and Vice President Harris held a virtual meeting this morning with key Democratic senators to discuss next steps, a meeting President Biden called productive. And while Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said, has signaled that he'd like to move forward on voting rights, Arizona conservative Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema is also blowing up those plans, is already blowing up those plans, reiterating her support for the 60-vote threshold for legislation. For his part, West Virginia's Joe Manchin has demanded that any action on voting rights be bipartisan, while he also stalls the Build Back Better bill with his incoherent opposition to a key element, the child tax credit. He either thinks it should be eliminated from the bill altogether or extended for 10 years, in which case he thinks it's too expensive. A nonsensical bag of positions that's been described by those close to the administration as like nailing jello to a wall. Manchin continues to stand in the way of Build Back Better, even though the Census Bureau found that in 2019, 20 percent of West Virginia children were living in poverty, the seventh highest rate in the country. Manchin is also opposed to adding dental benefits to Medicare in the bill despite more than a quarter of his elderly constituents having no natural teeth. So it appears that the only thing he's consistent about is stiffing West Virginia's poor. Joining me now is Senator Amy Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Senator Klobuchar, thanks for being here. Um, thanks, the Congressional Joy. Progress. Thank you. The Congressional Progressive Caucus has called upon the Senate to remain in session until Build Back Better is passed. Number one, is there any chance you all will remain in session? And if you did, would it make any difference with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema around? Uh, yes, uh, I'm wearing my team blue suit today, Joy, um, and I don't think I look like anyone that's ready to go home. Uh, I'm ready to get things done, and I know the president is as well. And in the Senate right now, um, there are so many people that want to move forward, and that is because we are in the middle of a surge in this pandemic. We need to bring down the cost of pharmaceuticals, something we have never done, and it is more than over time to do it, something the Republicans have voted against consistently. Um, it is time to actually bring down the cost of childcare and make it easier for people to go back to work. That's what Build Back Better is about. That's what we are in the midst of a debate. And I would note that neither of these two senators have come away from the negotiating table. Negotiations are going on as we speak. I was just with Senator Manchin for an extended period of time talking about the voting bill. And we can do two things at once. And with the voting bill, as you know, Joy, that is about the Senate rules. But respectfully, it does appear to me that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema being at the table 
it looks like a stalling tactic. I have to be honest. And and the, the, the folks out here in the world that are watching what what's going on in in Congress, it looks like Manchin and Cinema are trying to talk these bills to death. They don't support them. It's clear Joe Manchin does not want Build Better to happen. At least he doesn't want it to happen this year, if at all. Kirsten Cinema claims she supports voting rights. She's done absolutely nothing to prove that she supports it. She really cares more about the filibuster than she does about saving democracy, my opinion. And so I don't see what these negotiations, what is the point if they've made it pretty clear they want to kill the bill? Both okay, let's, let's, let's focus on voting first. Number mm-hmm. one, I would get rid of the filibuster in a minute if I could. I think there's, it does not meet the challenges of our time. Number two, both of those senators support the Freedom to Vote Act that I spent the entire summer negotiating uh, with Senator Manchin as a former Secretary of State and several other senators, including Warnock and Padilla. There's agreement on substance on the voting bill, and it is so important with 8,000 threats on members of Congress since January 6th, with local election officials leaving their positions because of threats against them, with over 400 bills, as you have so well discussed on your show, over 400 bills that have been introduced to stop the freedom to vote. That's what the stakes are incredibly high. We can't wait. So let me make clear, both those senators support the bill. So the issue is the Senate rules. And what we are arguing with them about is this isn't about changing the filibuster. It's about actually, as Senator Byrd himself in the old days said, you, the rules should meet the circumstances of our time. The circumstances of our time right now is an assault on our democracy. Byrd himself changed the rules several times. As you saw last week, Joy, the rules were changed for the debt ceiling. The rules have been changed, 160 carve-outs to the filibuster, and we are simply making the case to get this done and to allow the Senate to debate the bill. So I would disagree on the fact that they're against the voting bill. They're for the voting bill, and we are moving on the Senate rules. On the other bill, they are negotiating with the White House on the details, especially Senator Manchin, um, but he has signaled a willingness to get this done, and I don't think our country can wait. Do I get frustrated? Of course I get frustrated, Joy, but I just want to get this done, and these are the people we're working with right now. But the the challenge is... It's easy to say you're for the bills, but then when you oppose the only way to make the bills pass, because unfortunately there are no Republicans, zero, not any, that are willing to vote for either of these bills. Both Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, they know that. So they know that the only way to make these bills pass is by changing the rules. So being against changing the rules is being against the pieces of legislation. It's a way to do it and not be called on it. Isn't it true that both of these senators are claiming to be for the bills, but because they oppose the only way to pass the bills, they're against these bills, Senator? One, Joe Manchin's name is on this bill, Joy, so we have to be honest about this. And it's same day, but number two, Joy, you gotta, I'm in the middle of this every single day. Yeah. And I'm not going to give up. And I'm not going to give up on all the people that are going to be hurt by this. It's Bob Dole that once said, we're a first-class democracy, and we shouldn't treat people like second-class citizens, which is what's going on right now with what's happening in the states on voting. But right now, we are making the case to them. And they, and especially Senator Manchin, has signaled an openness to the standing filibuster. And there is a way, with Senator Merkley's help, uh, that we can get to the point where we can come up with an agreement on a rules change. The president, vice president firmly behind it to get to that moment. I don't really have a choice, 
Joy, but to yeah. stay here and talk to them. There is no other option here. The Republicans, as you point out, are not going to come over to the table and suddenly say, kumbaya, we want to help the people to allow people to vote. That's not helping because their path to victory is all, all paved in gold with this idea of picking their own voters and limiting the people who voted in the last election. We get that. They get that. The stakes couldn't yeah. be higher. Let, let me ask you about it. This is related. Uh, it, so the parliamentarian has ruled against the immigration plank that Democrats want to include in Build Back Better. This is going to affect, you know, hundreds of thousands of people if this can't be done. People who are really counting on Democrats to make it happen. Do you support the idea of another uh, idea, um, overruling the parliamentarian, which has been done in the past, and allowing Vice President Harris um, to do the overruling of the parliamentarian, which a vice president has done in the past, and then going ahead and passing these bills. And if that was over, if that overrule happened, could that bill pass with 50 votes? Yes, yes. I think that option must be on the table, and I hope we have a vote on that. Um, the question is, will everyone be on board? That's where we have to get to. But we cannot, we cannot move forward. Our economy, actually, when we have, especially in my state, incredibly low unemployment rates, which is a great thing. But we need people working. We have restaurants, places that literally are shutting down because we don't have enough workers. So that is the strong economic argument for these work permits that were included in the House bill that passed the House of Representatives with Build Back Better and that I strongly want to see. I would like to see a path to citizenship. Um, I am a original sponsor of the bill that would provide for that. But right now, uh, this is the next best thing that would allow us to go forward. So yes, of course, that's on the table. Senator Amy Klobuchar in her blue for sticking around for the holidays. <laughs> because to keep I am working. not. Yes, exactly. I'm not well, someone I, that's I, going home. <laughs> I, I appreciate you always being willing to come on and, and you know, parry with me on these issues because, you know, they're very important and I know you care about them. So thank I you do. very much, Senator. Thank Happy you, holidays. Joy. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy Thank holidays you very much. Cheers. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, the defense is presenting its case in the trial of former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter for the deadly shooting of Dante Wright during a traffic stop. Potter is expected to take the stand tomorrow. We'll bring you the latest next. Ms. Potter, do you, do you still want to testify or have you changed your mind? Yes, Your Honor, I'll testify. Okay. And you don't need any more time to think about that? No, Your Honor. Okay. The defense began its case today in the trial of Kim Potter, the former Minnesota police officer who was charged in the shooting death of 20-year-old Dante Wright. It's expected that Potter will take the stand tomorrow. She faces first and second degree manslaughter charges following the traffic stop in April, where she says that she mistook her gun for her taser when she shot Wright in the chest. She could face up to 25 years in prison if found guilty on both charges. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and a Georgetown law professor. And, you know, as sort of um, it, it's sort of impossible seeming as this this claim is that she mistook her gun for her taser. Anybody who's actually ever held a firearm and held a taser, they are quite different. They're different colors and everything. What do you make so far of the case that the prosecutor um, has made and her decision to testify? So to convict Ms. Potter of manslaughter, prosecutors don't have to prove that she intended to kill Dante Wright, but only that she was reckless or negligent. And Joy, the prosecution has emphasized, as you say, how different a taser looks from a gun. 
to make the case that no reasonable police officer would make the mistake that Potter claims that she made. Tasers are brightly colored. They're twice as heavy as guns. The trigger mechanisms are very different. Plus, Potter always kept her gun in one pocket and her taser in another. So no cases against a police officer is ever a slam dunk for the prosecution. But based on the evidence, it's hard to see how Officer Potter could be found not guilty, even if she's not convicted of the most serious charges. On the other hand, Joy, you never know what a jury's going know. to do. And there are particular concerns in a racially charged case like this when the jury is not diverse. This jury has only one black juror. Here we go again. I mean, and then there, there's also the things that are similar that we're now used to. You and I have done this a lot trying to blame Dante Wright for his own death, saying all he had to do if he just complied. You know, the same sort of story of trying to demonize the dead person who can't defend themselves because they're dead. Um, does it surprise you that that is being attempted here again? Uh, not at all, but prosecutors are learning from other cases and they're trying some of the same tactics that have gotten cops convicted. So when the victim is a black man, prosecutors have to try to get the jury to see his humanity. Dante Wright's father testified yesterday. He talked about, he told the kind of stories you'd hear at a Christmas dinner about how he was both Dante's father and his boss at work. Uh, poignant stories about how much Dante's father loved Dante and how much Dante loved his own son. The defense typically depicts the victim as a thug who deserved whatever the cops did to him. Joy, it's a shame that in 2021, prosecutors still have to humanize black victims, but it was an effective strategy that helped convict Derek Chauvin of murdering George Floyd. So prosecutors hope it will lead to a manslaughter conviction of Kimberly Potter. Speaking of, you mentioned Derek Chauvin. I want to just pivot really quickly to the fact that he did plead guilty um, to violating George Floyd's civil rights. Um, that strikes me as a big deal, not just for him, and he could get an extra six years on his sentence if he gets the full 25 years for the federal charge, and they serve concurrently on top of his 22 and a half years. But there are three other police officers that have to go to trial. If you're their defense attorneys and you look at him actually losing a very unusual case, police officers don't often get convicted of killing people, particularly killing black people. He went down. He's pleaded out on the federal charges. Do you think this makes it more likely that the other three will, will try to cop a plea? It makes it slightly more likely, but they have a very different defense and posture in both the state and federal trial than Derek Chauvin. Uh, they were mainly rookie officers. Chauvin was their training instructor, so they're going to try to blame him. As we know, uh, Derek Chauvin didn't plead guilty in the federal case out of the goodness of his heart. In every plea bargain, there's something for both sides. So prosecutors got their federal conviction. And at sentencing, they're going to ask the judge to throw the book at Chauvin. But what was in it for Chauvin? He probably will be allowed to serve his entire sentence in federal prison. And that will be an improvement over the state prison where he's now being held in solitary confinement. That's probably why he took this deal. Plus, if Chauvin had gone to trial and lost, he could have been sentenced to life in prison. So quite a different calculus for Derek Chauvin than for the three officers who also participated in the act which led to George Floyd's tragic death. All right. Let's put it right back to the Potter trial. There is this question of the trials that we've watched. There have been this, you know, these attempts to sort of humanize the, the, the person who's the defendant. So we saw in the Rittenhouse trial that he— 
did his testimony, the tearful testimony. We saw in the case, in the Georgia case, the men who killed Ahmaud Arbery, one of them tried to testify. That didn't go so well for him. Do you think that testifying in general it tends to help, particularly when the person is a police officer who um, almost all white jury might sympathize with? That's a great question, Joy. And in other high-profile cases, we've seen mixed results. So Derek Chauvin did not take the stand, and he was convicted of murdering George Floyd. But the Chicago police officer who killed Laquan McDonald testified in his own defense, and he was convicted of murder. On the other hand, Kyle Rittenhouse, his performance on the stand is probably the reason that he was found not guilty. Well, that and the judge being on his side. Well, that's my own <laughs> editorial opinion. Uh, Paul Butler, my friend, thank you very much. Ha- happy holidays. Thank you very much for being here. Happy holidays. Always appreciate you. Cheers. Uh, tonight's Absolute Worst is up next. And it's pretty darn infuriating, but sadly, not at all surprising. We'll be right back. Unfortunately, Republicans, as I say, you know, vote no and take the dough. Speaker Pelosi said it best back in March when the stimulus bill passed Congress without a single Republican vote. And that is exactly what Republicans are doing, taking the dough and even champ- and then champion and even championing it, even though they once denigrated a plan that delivered direct relief to Americans and businesses during the pandemic. It's a giant handout from Washington, D.C., and it's money that's being borrowed from the future from our children, our grandchildren and beyond. If you were in the Senate, would you have voted for the president's package? No, probably not. Uh, I, I wish that it would have been a bipartisan bill. There's a lot of other nonsense in that bill, which I'm not surprised at as someone who did serve in the Congress. But there's no doubt states like Florida who did it right are going to come up with the short end of the stick against other states that did it wrong. Mm-hmm. OK, baby Maga. That's real cute. But but aren't you the one who, let's see, um, oh, yes, 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 called the package Washington at its worst and then announced that the COVID relief money will go toward infrastructure, transportation, and workforce retention? Ditto on Ohio Governor DeWine, who said he would not have supported the Democratic package. But hey, since it's here, sure. Let's replenish the state's jobless benefits fund and improve health care facilities for kids while we're at it. And don't forget to pat me on the back. And then, of course, Christy Nome, ah, the Grim Reaper of Sturgis, who is using the nearly $1 billion Democrats handed her state to invest in local water projects, to make housing more affordable, and to build new daycare centers. Lovely. Democratic-backed stimulus, so easy to bash, even easier to spend. Now you tout projects that Americans desperately need, clean water, jobs, daycare, with funds that you condemned as handouts to improve your re-election prospects. Hey, you got to do something as your constituents get infected and die from COVID, am I right? while turning one of the most desperate, grief-stricken years in modern American history into partisan blood sport. Republican hypocrisy? Yeah, it's the absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.